You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Gym Day Podcast is brought to you by Kroger, fresh for everyone. Now batting, number one in our hearts. At least he'd like to think so. It's the Jim Day Podcast. Hi, everyone. Hope you're well out there. And welcome to another edition of the Jim Day Podcast. We are so grateful that you have decided to check us out once again. And, well, this is a tough one because you never want to say goodbye um, to anyone but when it's one of the greatest to ever play the game in which your life is centered around and in this case for me the game of baseball saying goodbye to Tom Seaver the only Tom terrific in my book has been tough on many and much tougher than on me I never got to personally know Tom Seaver, but I feel like I did because of the people that I'm around that knew him well, and you're going to hear some coming up, and how they glowingly talked about Seaver, of course as a pitcher, but as a human being, that he was larger than life, that he was a good man, terrific sense of humor, well-accomplished outside of the game of baseball. And, hey, was also a longtime broadcaster, Tom Seaver. Tom passed away on August 31st, age of 75, and he had been battling dementia for several years, which made those around him sad, and anyone that has dealt with that of a friend or family member, it's, um, it's just a horrible thing. But, As time goes on, those people will also remember the good times. And we are talking about one of the best of the best to ever do it. 12 All-Star Game selections, 311 wins, 3,640 strikeouts, and a career ERA of 2.86. He made 16 opening day starts. That's the most... Of any pitcher. I mean, think about that. The best of the best you roll out there on opening day. 16 times. And when he came over to the Reds in 1978, I remember thinking, how did we get Tom Seaver? Unbelievable. There was only no hitter in a Reds uniform. And coming up, we're going to have three special visits Three guys that knew Tom Seaver well. And we'll start it off with Johnny Bench, Hall of Fame catcher, who, of course, was the battery mate with Seaver many times for the Reds and was friends long before um, he became a Cincinnati Red. So we'll get a visit from the greatest catcher of all time. We will hear from George Grand, who for years and years, 30-plus years, I think, uh, hosted the Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Cooperstown. And he knows these Hall of Famers so, so well. We'll get his thoughts on Tom Seaver, and then finally we'll be joined by Marty Brenneman, who will look back on one of the players that Marty truly came close with and hit it off from the get-go. So we'll look back, and we'll look back with some sadness, and we'll also look back, well, with some smiles and some laughs as well. As we dedicate this Jim Day podcast to the late, great Tom Seaver. All right, let's bring in the greatest catcher of all time, Johnny Bench, former teammate of Tom Seaver, friend of Tom Seaver, and uh, fellow National Baseball Hall of Famer. And Johnny, we uh, we appreciate you joining us. I know um, this week has been tough for everyone that came in contact with uh, Tom Seaver when you learned of the passing of your friend. Well, it's really been tough. I, I lost a really good Cincinnati friend as well earlier in the week. And then, uh, I don't know, I guess with Tom's condition, I 
I dreaded the, the thought or dreaded the phone call and dreaded the uh, news coming that Tom had, had lost his battle with uh, his Lyme disease and dementia. And I'm, uh, I, I, you know, I try to keep up as much as I can. My, our friend Tom Hume was out actually to see him and got to go by. And Tom was, uh, you know, not, not all there. I mean, it, it's, it's sad. You saw it with Sparky. You saw it with, I see it with people. And I can remember three years ago when at the hall of fame, Tom came back and, uh, we were, well, it was Thursday and, uh, Tom had that sort of blank look in his eyes. And by Monday, by Sunday, when the, when the induction started, there was a sparkle, there was, uh, a, a new life in Tom. And I think it was because being around and everything else, some recognition and, it's a deadly disease. It's fatal. It's, it's sad. And, but for, uh, for all of us, it was still the, the worst news that we could hear. And I think Tom's association, I think for him, I, we've always been respectful of each other. I always thought it was the kind of guy that the first time I faced him, it was like, here it is, hit it. And that's just the way he approached his pitching because it could overpower you. He knew he, you might get a hit here and there, but at the same time, he, he knew how to pitch. He knew what to do. And in 1970 in the all-star game uh, in Cincinnati, I was catching and Tom was pitching and it was in the twilight. It started, the sun was still bright, but there were shadows all across the field. And I called a couple of fastballs and I called a curveball and Tom called timeout and motioned me out to the mound. And he said, it's, it's twilight. We're not throwing breaking balls. <laughs> <laughs> He said, they're going to have to hit this 95 mile an hour fastball. So I went back. It was really, it was easy from then on. Just put down the one. And I was brilliant because I had Tom Seaver pitching. Tom later joined us in 1978. And actually I was in the clubhouse when I got a call to go into the equipment room. And a guy by the name of Art Richmond, who was the uh, marketing sales, traveling everything for the New York Mets, called me to ask me about he said, we've got to, we're about to make a trade for Seaver, and I want to know about the players involved, Steve Henderson and Doug Flynn and Norman and Zachary. And I gave him a blow-by-blow. Blow. And I said, you know, great young talents, good at the job, uh, you know, good power, great speed, good defense. And later that day, the later that night, the next day, the trade was made. And it was just so exciting to have, you know, the thought that Tom Seaver was going to pitch for us and, we got to Montreal, Tom walked in the clubhouse. And of course we had a nice relationship. We had been in a lot of different places together and great respect, great friendship, a man's man. And I, uh, I said, Oh, the great Tom, terrific. We've got it one now. And he gave me that little wry grin of his and he started the game and the first inning we scored a run and I came in and sat down next to him. I said, okay, big boy, we got your run. Tom receiver, <laughs> one run. We got it with this game one. And in the second inning, Ava gave up a double, a double, a single, a single. We got two runners on, and uh, we're down two to one. And I call timeout, and I walk out to the mound, and I looked at him. I said, are you trying? <laughs> and he tells the story far more than I do. And he, he said, I, I said to myself, if we score three runs, we'll win this game. Well, now, <clears throat> excuse me, now it's the fifth, fifth inning, and he's got nobody on, and there's two out. And I call timeout and I walk out to the mound and he looks at me like, what are you doing? There's nobody on base. There's, you know, and I, and I, <laughs> I took the ball out and I handed it to him. I said, should I throw the ball back to you hard or softly <laughs> and turned around and immediately walked back towards the, towards back towards the plate. He was yelling stuff at me. Don't you ever come out here and talk to me again. And we, uh, we worked the time we, we every Sunday we worked the New York Times crossword puzzle together. We played bridge. We laughed. We traveled. We ate together. And when I got so many calls, I got so many calls from friends this past week and and texts about people who knew my admiration and love for the man and uh, condolences because I he said I, I can remember you always saying what. Tom was a man's man. And they said, I really remember that. He was, he was brilliant. He was funny. And, uh, 
you know, that the respect he got all across the league, but at the same time, it was the respect from his teammates, uh, from, from anybody that played with him. I know his great relationship with Carlton Fisk and I loved to watch it when he got to Cooperstown and the former teammates that he had. And it was the respect he had for the game and the respect he had for all of his teammates. And then it was just the, the competitor that he was. And, uh, <laughs> I remember when he moved to Cincinnati, he moved out to, he bought a place out at Kings Island or rented it. And I said, my gosh, why are you living so far out? And he said, John, he always called me John, uh, among other things like Buckethead, because he, <laughs> we both had the same size hat. And so he said, John, did you ever drive from Connecticut to Shea Stadium? It's an hour and a half drive both ways. Yeah. This takes me 30 minutes. He said, I'm quite pleased with where I am. Wow. Just a, uh, you know, when you think about how much of a competitor he was, and then you transition to what he was as a person, um, people talk just in gl as much of glowing terms of him as, as a guy, just, just to hang out, uh, and his sense of humor. Um, we overbilling it, or was it, you know, how, how great of a person was he? Well, I, I like to say for those that knew him, no words are necessary. For those that didn't, no words are adequate. Wow. You're underbilling him. Uh, I mean, in the playoffs in 73, I 10th inning, he's still out there pitching, and I let off the 10th the with a home run to win. And it was like, hey, that's what it's about. It's a challenge. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I had I had, I had, had even had texts from people uh I bought a house down here and from the owner, he said, and first game he ever went to was the game where Tom had it eight and a third perfect innings when uh, Qualls got the base hit to break it up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I was in, uh, I was uh, not playing and Don Warner caught his, his no hitter. And I can still remember the, the, the last play with uh, Hendricks, uh, uh, Hendrick Ruck hitting the ground ball to first base and Danny touching the bag. And, um, you know, it was a proud moment for him. There, there's accomplishments that I think we all wished or want to achieve. And for him, you know, to be so close so many times and the greatness of 300 games and 3,000 hits of all the things that went with it was still that one thing, that no-hitter. Because, I mean, you threw no-hitters in Little League. I mean, you know, and then you threw in high school. And it was like, you know, but the real accomplishment for him, you know, was everyday wins. But at the same time, it was that no-hitter. and. Uh, but he wore it, uh, so well, he, he really did, but, uh, he gained the respect of everybody in the game. Uh, the quality of a life and the, and the brilliance of the man, the intellect that he had was absolutely so enjoyable to be around it. The two of us, would, we got everything together. I mean, it was just, you know, we knew exactly what each other were thinking <laughs> We'd laugh. and all the times, uh, they were special. They were special to, to know the man and to, to be a part of his life. And I, you know, he bought the vineyard, you know, he loved his wine. He loved his grapes. He would tell, he would call, he would talk, we would talk about how he was, you know, understanding it, how he was out on the, the greater, how he was using the, the tools out there and the equipment to, to, to knock down the land and grade it and get new plants and then to get the different brands of wine and their grapes and, and mixing them and doing that. And, and then I, I, you know, I, I said, you know, I'd love to have some of your wine. And he says, well, yeah, we have it for sale. I said, well, you know, what's, what's my price? He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, I said, Tom, Tom, it's me. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> I have to pay this off. He said, and I said, well, what if I bought two cases? What would it be? And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, look, let's just put it this way. If I don't put down the signs, you would have been nothing as a pitcher. <laughs> I was the leader. I was the guy. And he go, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Uh -oh. that, that was high end wine too. You were. Uh oh, we had, we always addressed each other as Konnichiwa or Ohio Kazimus. Or we always, cause we went on the trip to Japan and yeah. so. We all, I, I was, and it was just always something that uh, uh, that we shared together, and the laughs. Oh my gosh, the brilliance of the man! 
I, I've I've lost it, but you know I don't I haven't lost it. I've, I've still got every bit of it. I got it all here inside of me, and I'll remember it to uh, I'll remember it till my dying day. That uh, and I'll have it. I'll have it. I have Tom Seaver every day, just like I have my mom and my dad. I have people that are special to me, and and I I will never ever I will I will smile and laugh and think about everything Tom Tom did for me and did for baseball. Well, you got to remember the good times. Uh, what what was it like to catch him as opposed to maybe just an average pitcher? Well, as we understood each other, you know, I, I think he said, you just put your glove down and I'll hit it. You know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it's it's like an artist and you've got the easel and you can paint it the way you want it. You know, it's like there were times when you, you caught, you know, Don Gullett or Gary Nolan or people that, you know, and of the great stuff and the great years that they had and, you would wind up knowing that whatever you wanted to call, he was going to give it to you. And, you know, it was nothing that sometimes he wanted it. Sometimes I wanted it. If he shook it off, that's fine. There were, there's no, you know, derision in what we're doing because the brilliance of the man was the fact that he knew exactly who, what, when his game plan, every bit of it was all planned out. And, uh, but we had a trust in each other that, uh, you know, I knew I could call almost any pitch at any time and it would be beneficial and, and, and work out. He famously would get his, would have dirt on his knee because he would be so out so far out in front with his lead, um, with his lead leg. Did it amaze you that delivery, how he would just pound it down? Well, it was the original drop and drive, you yeah. know, I mean, that everybody talked about it and, uh, to think that he could get that low and to be underneath it so much and get the spin on it and the, and the pull down on it, on this, on the seams that made such a difference and, and, and made the success for all of that. Uh, you know, there's, there's been, how can you say it's like a golf swing? Some people, the Palmers, the Nicholas's, the Trevino's, all of them are different. Everybody's, you know, delivery was different and the drive and there was mechanics that you always looked at and what he did. There wasn't much you could do about Tom. You know, Tom had one particular deal, and he was always in that slot or always in that groove. There are always pitchers who get out of the groove and get out of the slot or change whatever pace they have. And there were times when, you know, I would go out and I, you know, you would, I might be, I'd go out and uh, clean out the batter's box. I'd fill in holes. And all that was was just to have them get a second to regroup, to think about it, to what they had to achieve. And maybe just that pause enough to, okay, regroup. Let's get back to settle in and settle down. Let's not rush. Let's not do anything. Uh, and Tom, even even Tom Seaver needed that. And you understood each other. We understood each other, uh, you know, heart and soul, I think you could say. When he came over in 1978, I know you guys were, you know, you won 75, you won 76. You're trying to get back in, at 70. I think you're like six games out. Did you feel like he was going to be the missing piece that year? I, I remember being so excited, like, what? We got Tom Seaver? How did we get Tom Seaver? Uh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, the the Mets and, and some of the things and some of the negotiations and things, uh, you know, they sometimes disrupt uh, friendships and relationships. And, and for Tom, it was, uh, you know, a, uh, I think it was a shock. It was a shock to baseball. It was a shock, first of all, that we got him. But we had such stature, and it's still at that time, that we could, you know, make and afford to give up some great people and quality people in our system that could that they could make a trade for him. And they got four people, that, and and we got Tom. And and I, you know, you have to think back in those days for all of us. You know, when you got to be 32, 33, somewhere in the 30s, you were going to lose it. That was just normal way of, of, life, of life and way of thinking was that you were you were going downhill. You know, we all got old, whether it be Tony Perez or anybody else at that age, we weren't going to get anything more out of them, and they weren't going to be productive. And that was just sort of a thing that, you know, a lot of general managers looked at. And so... I think for Tom, you know, they thought, okay, he's got 198, 195, whatever wins he had with the Mets, and he's served his use, and we need to be going forward. And we're not the 69 Mets anymore. It's been nine years. And so they start to think about all of that. And, you know, when you start to, you know, 
you know, cross hairs and, and cross wires with, with management, sometimes you're expendable, and that's the way it worked out. Well, famously, years later, uh, your friend and mine, Doug Flynn, who was part of that trade, that uh, you know how a, a blue pit years later becomes a stinging line drive? Well, years later, Doug Flynn says he was traded straight up for Tom Seaver. Well, that's that's always our best stories. You know, the glue <laughs> has to do it. And that's the fun and we have in baseball and everything else. And, and uh, yeah, why not? Why not say those things? Because everybody knows it's not true. It's just a matter of the fact that it's great. It's great paper. It's great, for, you know, news. It's great uh, copy. Absolutely. Well, Johnny, we uh, appreciate you reflecting on uh, Tom Seaver a little bit, your friend. Uh, I know it's a tough week. And uh, as you said, when uh, you think of him, uh, if you could just smile and laugh uh, once you get through the heartache of that he has gone from the earth, I know uh, you'll remember the good times, and there were a ton of them. You know, I, I was at a, a – it's been a few years ago, and former Reds player that had lost his wife uh, 50 years. And I said, I'm so sorry. He said, don't be. He said, you realized how lucky I was to have that person in my life for that long? Some people never experience those things. And I said, thank you. I'll always remember that. Yep. Be happy that it happened. Yep. All right, Johnny. Uh, All right, Jim. Godspeed to you, and uh, again, appreciate it. Hope we'll, hopefully we'll talk to you on down the line. Will do. Thanks, Jim. All right, great stuff from Johnny Bench there. We still have George Grand and Marty Brenman to come after these messages from Kroger. It's summer, and that means it's hot outside. Oh, sure, you have shade, you have sprinklers, you have air conditioning. But do you have Reese's Cups from the freezer? Yeah, you heard me, frozen Reese's Cups. Reese's Cups from your freezer might just be the best thing since, since, since Reese's Cups. Not from your freezer. So cool off this summer with your favorite Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And the next time you stop at your local Kroger, grab Reese's Cups and chill out. Love getting prices that are lower than low on backyard favorites like grill-ready hamburgers and fresh-picked strawberries? Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, plus rewards like fuel points, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Well, George Grant, I wish you were returning to the podcast under better circumstances, but at the same time, as hard as it's been for friends of Tom Seaver, and you're one of them, uh, to say goodbye to him, uh, here we are to celebrate his life, and what a life lived. Amen. Um, I mean, you got a couple of weeks to talk about it. It's like uh, he was one of the most remarkable people that I've ever been around. I mean, he was a, a great athlete, a great guy. Uh, a superlative businessman, meticulous in everything he wanted to do, and everything he wanted to do, he wanted to be the best at. It. I mean, whether it was being a baseball player, or being a wine grower, or being a broadcaster, you know, or being a dad, whatever it was, he wanted to be the best that he could be at it, and he studied to to do that. Um, I mean, aside from baseball, as long as I knew him, he was enamored with wine. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he, he loved to drink it. He loved to appreciate it from his days, his playing days. And I remember when we were broadcasting together, we went to Milwaukee one year and he, he called me. We go to breakfast uh, in the morning when we were on the road. And he said, what are you doing this morning? I said, nothing really. So well, come on with me. I'm going to a this wine uh, shop that's supposed to be pretty good. We went there and we were there for three hours and he spent four thousand dollars on wine and and talked about everything imaginable wow. with the owner of the shop um when when bob boone was coaching with us and we crossed paths with tom bob and tom and i went to lunch and tom comes in with this big roll paper like a, a map and he puts it out on the table and we never said a word the whole lunch all he did was talk about his vineyard he, you know, he he pointed out the 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 height of the mountains, the height of the hills, and you know what the humidity was on one side, what the temperature was on another. The red grapes needed more sun. The, the white grapes needed less sun. He was like the mad scientist, and Booney and I walked away from that shaking our heads, you know, 
saying basically, um, what else do you expect? You know, you knew he was going to be the best at it, and, and he was. He he really was a unique individual that was, I mean, he was the biggest voice in the room. He had a great personality that the laugh I'll, I'll, I'll take with me till the day I die. It was a cackling laugh that, that made everybody aware that he was there and also uh, made you all feel good. So a special guy. And, you know, we, we say goodbye and it's sad, but in a, the, the end it was a blessing because Nancy and the girls have had a rough couple of years and he's at peace and he's up there firing that fastball and, um, and no pain anymore. Yep. I forget to, uh, there's a national baseball writer and I'm, I forget who it was, but he'd put on social media that, you know, back in the day I was, I, I tried to get Tom Seaver to sit down and talk about the art of baseball. I tried for years and years and years and he wouldn't do it. And finally I mentioned to him that I think it was his daughter, the writer's daughter was going into the wine business and all of a sudden, <laughs> 45 minutes later, you know, he finally sat down Tom Seaver and it took wine to get that conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because up at Cooperstown uh, every year, there, it, there's three dinners, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And on the the uh, the, the final dinner of uh, the weekend, when only the Hall of Famers got together, there was a wine table. And at that wine table, Tom Seaver was part of it. Um, Don Sutton was part of it because Sutton, you know, loved wine. And there were Steve Carlton. Carlton was a great you know, wine connoisseur as well. And every once in a while, they'd invite somebody else to, to come along. And the deal was you sat there and you, you had to bring a special bottle of wine to the table. Each guy brought a, enough for everybody at the table. And Joe Morgan always kidded Seaver, how come I can't be with the wine table? Well, you know, and so finally <laughs> Seaver said, okay, this year you can be on, sit with us at the wine table. So we're at the, we're at the, um, the Otisaga Hotel and we're walking over uh, where the dinner was going to be. And I'm walking over with Joe and Joe says, hold on, hold on a second. I got to go in here. We go into Walgreens. And Joe buys about a $6 bottle of wine at Walgreens. <laughs> and he takes it He takes it to the table. Oh, no. <laughs> just to show those guys up. You know, they're all they're all snooty about the wine that they were drinking. And here comes Joe. And Joe showed him up pretty good. It was, oh, it was hilarious. It wow. was hilarious. Well, Tom Seaver's, uh, you know, his wine, his vineyards, it was like $200 a bottle, I think. I mean, it was high, oh, yeah. high-end yeah. wine. Yeah, it, it started a little over a hundred, and the first yeah. year, first year, in fact, the first year he brought wine for most of the Hall of Famers, and they all, hey Tom, we send me do this, send me a, you know, send me a, a case or whatever. He said, well, hold on, and he gave him an order form. He he wasn't going to give anybody a deal. That's what um, Bench said. I had Bench on this very podcast. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, said yeah. what he he asked Tom, hey, what's my price? He says, oh no no, it's regular price. What if I buy two? Oh no, still the same price. I got to pay this off. I will say this though. That's true. He did that to everybody, but the JB, I know JB got some wine from him because their oh, relationship bet. was so special. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have a picture that I took of the two of them and, uh, it, it had to be about 2008 or 2009. It was a long time ago. And at the Friday night dinner, which was a dinner where, uh, it was very informal and the Reds players really stole the show every single year because, you know, Tony Perez and, and Joe Morgan and, you know, you get down the list, everybody would show up. Sparky Anderson would show up and, um, you know, everybody would sit there and, and, you know, Bench and Seaver would, would always be the, the, the guys who really ran the show. And I, it was like, they were, they were brothers. You know, they talk about a bromance. That's what they had. They, they loved each other. Tom loved Johnny, Johnny respected Tom and loved him so much that, and that, that when I took the picture, I, I wanted to send it to both of them. I did, but you could see the love in their eyes when they put their arms around each other. It was, uh, it was pretty special. And it, you know, I mean, the, the stories that the two of them tell are, are, you know, legendary of when they played together and, and subsequent to that, but, uh, it was a great relationship and it'll live on forever. I'm sure for JB, you know, some guys love that, Hall of Fame weekend more than others, and you were the longtime MC or host of the weekend. Uh, it seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Tom Seaver really loved those weekends. He did. He did. He, um, um, when he, I, I remember I went to see him 
uh, early in, was about, I was at ESPN at the time. It was 80, I think it was, it, it had to be early 80s around there. And, and uh, after they won in 69, the Mets won in 69, um, the next year, um, Tom went up to Cooperstown with Nancy and uh, spent a couple of days there to look at Walter Johnson's plaque and Cy Young's plaque and really delve into the history. And there was a love, he had a love affair with the game. Yes. But he had a love affair with pitching and those who were great pitchers too. Um, and it really, as a matter of fact, you know, Johnny was part of this too. When Tom got in, Johnny got in, um, you know, that was Johnny got in 80, 89. Tom got in shortly thereafter. Uh, they really led the charge to bring to tell the Hall of Famers to come back. Um, and a lot of these Hall of Famers, you know, will take their memorabilia and, you know, put it in a trust or whatever. And I remember I remember sitting with Tom and Nancy and he said, well, when I'm gone, my stuff is going to the Hall of Fame uh, and all of not all, but whatever his family doesn't want. All, most of it is going to end up in Cooperstown. And uh, they they were the Pied Pipers to uh you know, among the young, the new Hall of Famers to try to get guys to come back. Because it used to be there only be maybe 10 or 12 Hall of Famers that would come right. back every year. And then little by little, all of a sudden there's 35 or 40, uh, which was great. I mean, we had so much fun. It was and it was so great to see the families together. And, and that was what they impressed upon everybody. It's not just the players that get in, but it's the families and, and what they shared to get to Cooperstown. And, you know, every every we would always get together at one time during the weekend and, and have a glass of wine. Uh, what a surprise at the Otisaga over the deck, overlooking the, the lake. I'll never forget the, the one year when, when Phil Rizzuto got in, this was the year after uh, we had broadcast with scooter and we're sitting there with a glass of wine and we toasted each other. And we said, only you and I know what America is in for tomorrow when Scooter gets up and starts his speech. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think you'll agree that, I mean, the two hilarious speeches that, that I'll recall in my career were, you know, Bob Euchers yeah. was amazing and Scooter's because yeah. they were hilarious. They were just hilarious. and But they had no idea. Euchre knew what he was going to say. Um, but Scooter had no idea what he was going to say, but he, he took you on a magic carpet ride. But, yeah, he, he enjoyed he enjoyed. Cooperstown. He, he brought his family up, and it was um, it was pretty neat. It was a, a a big big part of his life, that's for sure. And he was very active, as was has Joe Morgan been uh, and Johnny in in the leadership at Cooperstown too. Well, Rizzuto, I always thought that the Hall of Famers there should have turned their back on part of the speech, just a la to his scorecard. WW wasn't watching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm I'm, sit, I'm sitting here at my desk, and I got a, I got one of his scorecards here. Oh, really? Uh, that I took home with the WW on oh, it. And, that is great. Yeah, but I tell you, I mean, I'm sitting, I'm sitting, you know, right behind Scooter as he's talking, and they gave it to him. You know, people out in the seat in the seats, and people at TV couldn't hear it or yeah. see it. But there were guys, Yogi Bear, saying, "Come on, shut up, sit down, it's hot." You know, and they were, they were all giving it to him, but. He did allude to it once, but, you know, it was like Euchre's speech, yeah. too. They were laughing. They were having a good time. They were oh, laughing. Yeah. 1969, those miracle Mets, um, for those that weren't around or weren't following baseball at the time, um, that was one special team that Tom Seaver was on. Yeah, you talk about, you know, you know Matt Lack, Kuzman, Seaver, and, oh, that other guy, Ryan, Nolan Ryan, I forget, you know, yeah. that, that young kid. Right. <laughs> I mean, you talk about some great pitchers. They sure had it. And, um, I mean, that was – it was a remarkable year. Uh, it was a remarkable group of guys um, that, um, you know, it's – they were – they enjoyed going to work every day. It's kind of like, you know, what you and me and Chris and Jesse for so many years have had doing Reds baseball – it was great to just get to the ballpark Oh yeah, because they had fun every day yep. and they worked hard every day. And, and Tom was, he was the leader. I mean, make no mistake about it. He is the franchise. He is Tom terrific. He's the greatest player that ever played for the Mets. And in my mind, the saddest part of all of this was through his career when he, after he retired, the one thing he wanted to do, and this was before he got into the winery business, he wanted to run the Mets. Not not just wow, to, really? you know not just to show up and shake hands. He wanted to be the general manager of the team president, wow. 
and he negotiated a couple of times for positions to do that. He would have been good afraid, at it. They were afraid of him. Oh. Uh, and it, he, the most too smart for him or what? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know the inner workings of why. Yeah. Uh, why it never happened, but believe me, he was he was very depressed and very upset and wow. and saddened by the fact he couldn't do that. He would have turned the Mets around, oh, and I think he was that successful was when, at everything he did. Exactly, and he had a plan. We would sit and talk about what he would do with the minor leagues, what he'd do with scouting. Um, they wouldn't even let him, in most cases, talk to the pitch. They they wanted him to show up and shake hands with people, and that'd be about it. And if they had been smart enough to to turn the reins over to him uh, the Mets would have turned their franchise around I have no doubt about that at all and in my mind it's a it's a, a tragedy and a travesty that you know they've honored him in the last year or so naming the street with the plaque and all that that should have been done 20 25 oh, years statue ago. should uh, be outside of city Field. exactly exactly um too late too late too late yeah he too won't late. be able to see it at least from yep. on the earth so yeah, that's a shame. Uh, they, they should have been a statue long ago. He's widely considered the greatest Met of all time. Um, there, there's an unseen statue that's always hovering over that park, and any Mets fan knows it's there. Yeah, I thought it was very cool how the current Mets saluted him with all with the dirty <laughs> knees and saluting his retired number. I thought that was very special. I tell you a true story. When um, uh, you mentioned the, the '69 Mets, and you remember he had that, you know, the perfect game going, the no hitter, and yeah. Jimmy Qualls uh, ended up getting the base hit. He had, you know, he had so many great games and the 19 strikeouts against San Diego, including the 10 straight, the, the no hitter against the, you know, when he was with the Reds, and and the the one of the funny stories was d- during his his career, his early career, uh, he had. Um, uh, Wes Westrom, the old catcher, was one of his coaches. Rube Walker was his pitching coach. And everybody used to remark about that right knee. He'd come into the game, even before he started to pitch, from his warm-ups in the bullpen. You know, he had, you know, his success is based on a lot of things. He's supremely intelligent. He was a hard worker. He understood kinesiology. He understood the dynamics of baseball. And he was blessed. God blessed him with unbelievable lower body strength, you know, from his, his feet all the way up to his hips. It was amazing the things that he could do, the strength that he had. And he, he, you talk about, he was the originator of drop and drive. Yeah. And when he would warm up, that right knee would hit the dirt. And every once in a while, when he'd warm up, he'd leave the bullpen without dirt on his right knee and Wes Westroom and Rube Walker. And he told me the story. He says, well, we walked out one day, and my knee wasn't dirty. And this is when everybody's making such a big deal. And Wes Westrom says to Rube, he says, you better dirty up his knee. So they're going to think he doesn't have his good stuff today. <laughs> so he reached down and he spit on his hand and picked up the dirt and rubbed it on his right knee. <laughs> so, that's, that's great. And from, from that point on, even if his knee wasn't dirty, when he left the bullpen, it was always dirty by the time he got to the mound. <laughs> <laughs> That was old-time baseball. Uh, oh, no <laughs> doubt about it. He was so smart. Uh, could you imagine him now if they gave him sabermetrics as a weapon as well? But he's one of those guys that would be, you know, as a matter of fact, we you mentioned the, you know, the, the, the no-hitter, Jimmy Qualls getting a base hit. Yeah. July 9th, I think it was, 1969. And I, I one of the interviews I did with him, we talked about that. And he said, you know, I that that you look at that lineup that day that the Cubs had. You had Billy Williams and Banks and Santo and all those guys. Qualls had just been called up from the minor leagues, so he didn't know oh, a, heck, he didn't know anything about Qualls. Yeah. If you can imagine that today, the pitching coach would have come out. Oh, they yeah. would have said this guy. And if he had three at bats, I think it was three at bats in the game, and he had three solid hits. Like he hit the ball solidly three times. So. He said, you know, in this day, he remarked at one point in time, he said, in this day and age, I probably would have had a scouting report, but he was the one guy I didn't know how to pitch. And it's it wasn't ironic, but it was strange that it happened that way because you're right. In this day and age, not so much sabermetrics and everything else and analytics, but in this day and age, he certainly would have had a scouting report yeah. on a guy who just got called up. But, you know, I'll tell you, Tom Seaver's one guy 
that could pitch the same way he pitched then and still win today doing the same thing. No doubt. You know, he wouldn't be changing his game. People would be changing to face him. That's the way Tom Seaver pitched. Yeah, no doubt about it. We hear obviously so much about him as a person and as a player and uh, wine. Um, but what was he like to broadcast a game with? Because he was, he, you know, he had a broadcast career as well that people really don't highlight very much. Just as I said before, he wanted to be the best that he could be. I mean, he, he when he first got into it, we we got together, we had breakfast. When he This is while he was still playing. He did a couple of uh, CBS radio games with Vin Scully, which, I mean, he did a tremendous job. And uh, he, in fact, I... Uh, when Kate, when Sean Casey was starting to go into broadcasting and, and Aaron Boone, the same thing, we would always get together and say, no, you know, Case, George, Georgie, what, what, you know, what, they, they tell me I got, I got to do this, man. You know, man, they, they want me to do this. They want me to do that. What should I do? What should I do? And I said, Case, just be yourself. And I, I said the same thing to Tom. I said, Tommy, just be yourself. You know, you're so bright, so intelligent. You got so many great stories. You're so you know, analytic of the game before analytics was popular, just be yourself. And, and he did, it was a joy to be with him. Um, I mean, just two simple things in games that I did with him. We were sitting once and I said, you know, we were talking about um, you know, pitching. Uh, we were doing the Yankee games at the time and we're, we're playing the, the uh, um, um, I think it was a white Sox if I remember. And, you know, we're talking about how do you, you know, when, when you had to face, uh, this guy, when you had to face that guy, what do you do? And he said, okay, who are the toughest guys you faced? Oh, well, you know, Mike Schmidt, uh, Willie Stargell. What did you do? Well, how'd you face Schmidt, uh, Schmidt? Hard in, soft away. What'd you do with Stargell? Hard in, soft away. In other words, he was so smart and he knew the each hitter, but he made it very simple, very simple. Push them, give him something hard in, push him back from the plate, and then either a slider or something softer away, that's how you're going to get him out. And that's the way he looked at it. I asked him once, um, in fact, when um, Chris and I talked about this a couple of times, we were doing games together, in a sacrifice situation, what would you do? He said, well, I want to get a guy out of there as quick as I can. If, if this guy's going to sacrifice against me, I'm going to give him a first pitch, a BP fastball right down the middle. Here's your chance to bunt the ball. Bunt it. And if he doesn't bunt it, I'm going to strike him out. That's, I'm going to, what he said was, I'm going to bury him. Yes, <laughs> so, love I mean, what, what he did was he made it in as a broadcaster. He did the same thing. He, he analyzed. Plus I mean, we had so much fun uh, broadcasting doing. And with Scooter, it was, you know, I mean, it was hilarious. The, the, the three of us, whether it was around the field or during the game, just the stories that, that we would get into and, and, and talk about, um, he was, and if he wanted to stay and continue to broadcast, he would have been a great broadcaster. But he had better visions of that. He, like yeah. I said, he wanted to, he wanted to be a, either a general manager or a team president. It didn't happen. And then he, he turned all his attention to the wine business. And boy, he was good at it. Good at everything he did. George, uh, I love walking down memory lane with you again. I wish it was under better circumstances. But uh, thank you for helping us celebrate the life of Tom Seaver. All right, JD. Always great to be with you. Take some uh, take take some W's home with you this week, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was in charge of that, but I'm not. I'm just along for the ride. But always great, great to, to be with you. Great to great be, to with, be you with you too, you. George. Marty Brenneman, we welcome you back to the Jim Day podcast. We wish it was under better terms, but uh, this past week, um, very sad week for anyone that came in contact with Tom Seaver, and certainly his closer friends, and I would put you in that category. Uh, tough one to swallow. Yeah, it really was, Jim. I, he'd been, you know, he'd been ill for a long time, um, but but there's been no indication. Uh, you know, I talked to Tom Hume, who's one of his closest friends on earth, and I don't think Tom had any indication that it was going to happen as quickly as it did. He heard from uh, one of Tom's daughters, Sarah, uh, contacted uh, Tommy to tell her, tell him, and he had no clue that it was going to happen as quickly as it did. He passed away in his sleep, and um, Amanda and I had dinner with him, and, uh, and his wife Nancy about I don't know six years, seven years ago, up in 
where they lived outside of Calistoga in Northern California. You know, he was in the wine business, which was a fulfillment of a dream for him. And um, we had dinner with them and uh, spent probably, I don't know, three, three and a half hours with him. It was when he, he was coming off of a period, I think he had Lyme disease and they had a hard time determining what the problem was. And they had finally diagnosed at a doctor in San Francisco that Nancy took him to and um, he, he was coming out of that. Uh, he still had some memory lapses then because of that, but he was fine. He, you know, he was, he was funny. He was uh, full of personality the night we were with him. And, uh, it, it was, as I look back on it, it was a great night to, uh, have been considered the final time that we were ever together because he, he, to me, in most, uh, in most situations, he was just like the old Tom Seaver. And that was a guy full of fun. Even though he was uh, suffering from dementia, and you, when you hear that, you expect you know this news to come at some point. But till it really happens, um, it, it's still very, very sad. Did you find yourself reflecting on all the good times and and how, just how great of a pitcher that he was? Yeah, you know the funny thing was I met him way back. Um, I was doing AAA baseball in Norfolk, which was the Mets AAA Farm Club at that time, and and they would do uh, almost on a yearly basis. The Mets would, uh, as the Reds used to do, going to Indianapolis, you know, every summer to play a, an exhibition game, and the Mets would come down in the middle of of, of a championship season every year and and play the Tides uh, in their ballpark in Norfolk, and um, you know, back then that was. I guess I met him in 71 and it was a big deal for me, you know, because the big league club was coming down there and I got, I met him for the first time then. Um, he was very gracious with me being, you know, a minor league announcer with aspirations of maybe getting to the big leagues. And, um, I, I was, I came away with a very positive impression of him. You know, you meet a guy, Oftentimes, when you you conjure up in your own mind what kind of person he's going to be based on, you know, what business he's in, uh, how how public he is, and how successful he's been, and I uh, I came away with a, a a very warm feeling about the kind of person that he was, and then of course, you know, I get the job and said since 1974, and cross I crossed paths with him all those years he was a Met before he was traded over to Cincinnati, and. Um, I saw great games that he pitched against the Reds. I saw great games that he pitched as a Red against other teams. And um, you reach a point, you know, when you see a guy that good and that consistent, um, rarely did he have a bad outing. And and he, on those days in which he was extra special, when he had everything working, he was absolutely dominant. I mean, it was there no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, you had no chance, and you could tell early if it was going to be that kind of day. And and so you 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 look forward to watching a guy like that pitch. I uh, used to enjoy watching Nolan Ryan pitch. Uh, you know when he was with the Astros, and and you say that with a degree of trepidation because you knew if you you caught him on a day in which he was on top of his game, you weren't going to win. Um, but Sieber was another one of those guys that you enjoyed watching pitching. He, he better than anybody that I've ever crossed paths with viewed pitching as a pure art form. He could articulate it in such a way that you could understand where he was going and what he was saying. And you never had to ask him to go back and, and, and say it again to clarify some question that you had in your own mind. And he loved to talk about it. He loved to talk about pitching. And I never forget one day he asked me, he said, I'm going to give you a little test. I said, okay. He said, the three most important aspects of being a successful pitching are location, movement, and velocity. He said, I want you to rank all three in terms of importance for me. I said, okay, well, velocity is number one. He said, you just failed the damn test. He said, stick a fork in you, you're done. He said, I got news for you, pal. He said, that's the last of the three. And then he proceeded, you know, as a college professor would, but not, 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 you know, 
uh, not in a matter that he was talking down to you. He always talked to you with the effort of trying to have you walk away with more than what you came for uh, and a little bit more intelligent about his art form. He said location is one, movement is two, and velocity is three. And I'll never forget that conversation because I think he knew when he asked me to name him what I was going to say. I, I'm convinced uh, oftentimes when I thought about that conversation we had. Um, there are a lot of guys that enjoy talking about what they do for a living, uh, especially guys that are, are look to be leaders in their field. But I don't know that I've ever met anybody who could talk about his profession uh, with the passion and with the love and with the ability to, to talk about it. He was a very bright, articulate guy. Uh, had a command of the English language, unlike most people that you would even come across. Um, and, and so he utilized all of that in order to try and make you a better student of the game of pitching than you might otherwise have been. He throws his only no-hitter in a Reds uniform, and everyone that talks about that no-hitter uh, it, it seems to be universal. You, you talk about 311 wins, all the strikeouts, and the sub three career ERA, and it's all the accolades, world champion. Um, but it would have been a shame if Tom Seaver went into the Hall of Fame without throwing at least one no hitter because he came close many, many times. And it was one of my favorite calls that you made of his no hitter. How special was that day? Well, I've often said that only other one other person could challenge the excitement and the gratification that he had, and that was me. Um, uh, echoing what you just said, he pitched five one hitters. Yeah. Before he pitched the no hitter against St. Louis, and two or three of those no hitters were broken up in the ninth. I think one of them was broken up with an out to go, and he had a perfect game going. Yeah. Um, so. I, I felt the same way you 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 did, and that would it would have been a it would have been a shame for him to go into Cooperstown, having never pitched one and having come as close as he had come, and so I was thrilled when it happened. I, I, um, I you know thrilled for him, thrilled for me because it was the first no hitter I'd ever broadcast in the big leagues. Seaver with a pause, the jack and the pitch. He bounces to first base. Friesen has it. Um, and, and, and to see the joy that he exhibited down on the field, um, with his teammates and the joy that they had for him, uh, that was one of the big keys because all it did was show people how much he was loved by those Reds teams that he played with. Uh, he had incredible, uh, incredible influence in the clubhouse as well as on the field when he pitched and, uh, the players appreciated the fact that he gave them a lot of credit every time, you know, a, a performance came up that that he pitched. So um, having pitched that no-hitter, and as it turned out, it was the only one he pitched in the big leagues. Um, I, I was just absolutely thrilled. And uh, I don't know, I can't recollect because, you know, it's been so long. I don't know that there were a whole lot of tough chances in that game. Um you know, the last out was routine when George Hendry grounded to Danny Dreesen to, to end it. Um, so, yeah, it, it was really special. It, it, had it been a Nolan Ryan type of situation where he'd already pitched two or three or four or whatever he pitched, or Sandy Koufax, uh, obviously it would not have been nearly um, as special. But I'm sure in Tom's case, the fact that he had come so close so many times and came up empty every time, and then, of course, pitched the no-hitter against the Cardinals. Uh, it, it was extremely special for him. And what's amazing about the game of baseball, and you just never know what's going to happen, he openly said, I didn't have near my best stuff that day. Right. That's certainly, I didn't feel the best on the mound that day, and for it to happen, just, I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but it, I think it surprised him even. Oh, I think so, too. Uh, his comments, obviously, uh said as much uh, when he did the post-game interview from the field. Uh, but again, there there's an example 
for young pitchers. Uh, you know, if you if you could go back and watch that game from beginning until end, if you're a young pitcher, knowing when you're watching it that he said in its aftermath that he did not have his best stuff, it just goes to show what you can accomplish. And that, of course, is to the extreme. But at the same time, you hear guys all the time saying, you know, I've had great stuff in the bullpen, and but I got to the mound and I realized I left it down there and I had to figure out a way to get by and win. And, and the great ones, more often than not, can do that. The guys that are not so great, they can't. But you can learn a lesson from watching the way he pitched that game against St. Louis with not his overpowering, dominant stuff. And, you know, at that age, he, he could still be dominant. I mean, he had not lost a whole lot, if anything at all, on his fastball and his ability to locate and, 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 and all that type of stuff. So um, you can learn an awful lot from watching the greats of the game especially on the mound when they don't have their best stuff and they figure out a way to get by, and he got by, got by to the extreme on that on that particular evening. What type of guy was he like to be around? I know when you have listed you know favorite players that uh, were in a Reds uniform, that he's on that list. What was he like to be around? Oh, on days that he was not pitching, he was a cut up. He was a clown. <laughs> He was a practical joker. He was everything that the normal fan would be shocked because, uh, uh, you know, he exuded the kind of buttoned up. Uh, he, he carried himself like the CEO of a successful. Yeah, he was like the all American boy. Exactly. He dressed well. He was handsome uh, and, and articulate and successful. And so for people to find out the way he really was, Um, a lot of people have said to me, you know, I appreciate your assessment, but I'd have to see that to believe it. I said, well, believe me when I tell you that this guy was one of the all time greats. You probably, uh, hopefully you haven't heard this story, but if you have stopped me and that's a Joe Minster story. Oh no. Even if I've heard it, bring it on. Well, Joe Minster was uh, a writer for the Hamilton journal and Joe was shorter than I am and had a little bit of age on him, uh, had a bit of a temper about him. And he would come down every home game and cover the club. And Joe was from the old school. He would wear suits and ties when he came to the ballpark or a sport coat, but always a necktie. And he would, and he worked and he was very earnest about what he did for a living and he did a nice job and he had been doing it for years and years and years, you know, obviously working for a paper that small, that's not a daily, um, Joe would uh, would only he would not go on the road, but he would be there without fail every home game. And Seaver developed an unusual kind of relationship with Joe because the relationship was based on uh, practical jokes or or doing things that would uh, get get Joe's dander up. And and the one thing that Seaver would do when Joe would come into the ballpark is take a pair of scissors out and cut his necktie off. (laughs) And he would do it repeatedly and without fail, he would do it. And, and it got to the, and I, Joe would really get upset. I mean, Joe would really, yeah, it gets expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't, those ties that Joe wore were probably 1928 vintage. Um, but Tom would, 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 would just simply would cut it off right at the chest. He'd have about four <laughs> inches of necktie showing. And guys would come to expect it. They would be waiting on it. And sometimes Joe would come in, and Joe would come in there very, very defensively and, and look around and see if he could spot Tom. And the, Obviously, the first place he'd look would be his locker. And if Tom was not in his locker, then he would get more cautious. And then there would be days like that when nothing would happen and Tom wouldn't do anything. And Tom would talk to him and relate to him just like you and I are talking right now. And then there are days when Tom would whip those big scissors out and cut that necktie off. And Joe would lose his mind. And it was the funniest thing in the world. I mean, funny for us because he was not cutting our neckties off, you know. Um, I, I, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure that there came a time when Joe, uh, when Tom went out and bought Joe a whole bunch of neckties. And, and, and I, I'm sure that placated Joe to some extent, but at the same time, when Joe was a focal point 
of a lot of laughter and it was good natured laughter. I mean, everybody loved Joe Minster and uh, they loved him in the clubhouse. They loved him in the press box. He worked his butt off to be the best writer he could be. But his nemesis, without any question, was George Thomas Seaver. And it was a funny thing to watch. <laughs> that is great. Uh, was it like when you would see him years later or whenever you would see him, was it we just kind of pick up where you left off like you'd never been apart? Oh, yeah. And that night that Amanda and I had dinner with he and his wife up there in Calistoga, and then we talked about, you know, his when he pitched with the Reds and brought up again the Joe Minster story and um his 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 stay in Cincinnati was very good I think if he were alive today and and he were a part of this phone call he would tell you that of all the places that he might have been traded that that trade meant an awful lot to him even though he was brokenhearted to leave New York you know he had a falling out with Donald Grant who was president of the club and and uh, it, it, it was a situation that simply resulted in the split becoming a necessity. And, and of all the places he could have gone, I don't know that he could have been happier than he was being in Cincinnati. Because here's a guy who was a future Hall of Famer coming to a town and coming to a ball club that already was completely immersed in soon-to-be Hall of Famers. Right. You know, surrounded by Banshee, surrounded by Morgan, he's surrounded by uh, uh, a guy who should be but isn't in Pete. I mean, it was just, a, I, for me, it, I thought it was an ideal situation. Obviously, that trade was made just like the Ken Griffey Jr. trade was made years later, and everybody felt this is it. You know, this is the beginning of a run of postseasons for this ball club and it, for whatever the reason and for reasons that certainly had nothing to do with him because he was very successful wearing a red uniform, but that team success really was not realized except for 1979. But, uh, you know, if, if he liked you and you were a part of wherever he was, whether it be all those years with the Mets and though with the Reds, and then of course having pitched with the Red Sox and the White Sox, et cetera. Um, he, he enjoyed seeing you. He enjoyed talking about the old times, but he also loved talking about the wine business. I mean, that was, that was uh, quite honestly, I think over everything else, the one thing that he always wanted to do, and even years and years and years before it ever happened, was talking about his desire to one day um, own a winery and own a successful winery to the point where, you know, he told his wife, came home one night and told Nancy they owned this beautiful home in Greenwich, Connecticut that was a, 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 a redesigned barn, uh, barn that they completely redesigned and made it into an elegant home that they were going to sell the home and they were going to move to California. I think he'd already picked out a plot of land, 500 acres, I think up there in the wine country. And that was all he really wanted to do. And I've had people tell me that every year prior to him opening, uh, you know, you got to sit for five years and wait until the grapes mature before you put out your first bottle. Right. But they, they, people tell me hall of famers would tell me that uh, when he would go to Cooperstown every year, and he loved doing that uh, even before he ever got there or even after he got there, you know, everybody gathers to talk baseball and they would tell me all he wanted to talk about was a wine business. So he loved that as much as he enjoyed and loved with a passion, the game of baseball and pitching successfully at the highest level. Um, we have, I don't know how many bottles of his wine. It's, uh, it's, elegant wine it is and it's not it's not inexpensive wine it's it's very expensive um but that's that's what he wanted to do with his life and i truly believe had it never happened um he would have gone to his grave slightly unfulfilled as far as what he thought his life's work should be after baseball and once he was able to do that and 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 get up every morning and look out over this vineyard that he had slowly growing and slowly maturing and finally to the point where they were able to produce uh, GTS wine 
then his life was fulfilled. And he was happy with everything about the way his life had gone down. But the wine business was the, that was the icing on the cake. That was putting the bride and groom at the top. That was everything uh, fulfilling about the kind of life that he eventually wanted to have. And God bless him, he had it. Absolutely. Where does he stack up historically for you as a player, as a pitcher? Well, you know, that's a good question because I've maintained the best pitcher I ever saw uh, in the years I was around was uh, Greg Maddox. But I would rate Tom Seaver right there behind him. Um, I, he just, you know, he, he was just, as I said earlier, it's a thrill to watch. He's the kind of money that you'd pay money to, to watch play. He's the kind oh, yeah. of pitcher that, or a player. And I, believe me when I tell you, for me personally, there are not a whole lot of players that I would pay money to watch. Um, but he certainly was one of them because uh, you would go to watch him pitch. And I think the expectation was, even though he only pitched one, I think the expectation was, you know, this might be the day that Tom Seaver pitches a no-hitter. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and so I think that that says an awful lot about what he brought to the table every fifth day. And uh, the other thing is, you know, as big a practical joker and as great a sense of humor as he had uh, on that day that he pitched and he'd be sitting in his locker doing the New York times crossword puzzle. He's not interested in having any kind of conversation with you or with anybody else. He would not be rude, but you just grew to know that that's the day that you don't do any more than say, hi, Tom, how are you? That's the end of it, because he would tell you in no uncertain terms, this is the day that I work, and I really don't have a whole lot to say until after the game. And that was true every fifth day, and that applied to his teammates. That applied to media people, and it was not a case of being nasty or rude. He was never rude. I mean, he, he if he was, it was unintentional, but he just made it perfectly clear that this is a day that the real Tom Seaver – will not emerge until after the game is over. The real Tom Seaver was a fun Tom Seaver. Well, he was special, and we appreciate you dropping in and paying your tribute to him and uh, the memories that you have. And everyone will always remember the good times, not how it ended, but the good times. Yep, no question. Thanks, Jim. And we certainly appreciate Johnny Bench, George Grand, Marty Brenneman joining us for a look back and a tribute to now the late Tom Seaver. Hope you enjoyed the conversations. And uh, it's been a tough one uh, for those that knew him well. But um, you always will, in the end, look back on the good times. And there's a saying that I truly believe in, and it fits here. They who live on in the hearts of those they leave behind never die. Tom Seaver, one of the greatest to ever do it in the game of baseball and a fine, fine man. We thank you for joining us for the Jim Day podcast. And again, please spread the word that we exist and rate and review this podcast. And if you'd like to check me out on social media, at Jim Day TV on both Twitter and Instagram. Until next time. So long, everyone.